Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. Anchor users, feel free to leave a voice message. And now we continue with Theodore Pratt's The Money, segment 14. Their summer had been idyllic. Never had they been so happy. They had a clubhouse like none other they had ever heard of. They had TV all their own, and their spats about what programs to watch continued to be, for the most part, minor. They had plenty of their favorite drink. They had all the money, or at least almost all, they wanted to spend, and if they dared to use more, it was available. This was especially so because, after a number of discussions, they voted to increase the weekly payment from the box to $3 and then to $4. George allowed this because nothing had been found out yet, but he kicked like a steer when it was proposed that they go to $5, and they followed him in this, though there were a few grumbles, notably from Joey. Several of them bought things that were questioned at home, but they managed to squirm out of the difficulty in one way or another, several times using as an excuse that they had entered a contest and won a prize. They thought of the headstone cutter, the man with the big white dusted hands working on the black marble, and it gave them a good feeling which made them look forward to the date they would go to Mr. Wesley's grave and see his name carved on the stone. Several times when it rained, the water came in the ceiling of the club, once dripping on the TV, but it didn't seem to damage it any, particularly because Gracie's sheet came in handy to protect it and thus justify itself. They used up the seven battery packs, and to supplement George taking some home to recharge, which was sometimes too risky to do, they went into the city to buy more. On a few days, the clubhouse was not opened. This happened when, tired of even this good thing, as many as three of them stayed away and went elsewhere to spend their expanded incomes, or when three of their families took them away for a day at the same time. Then the other two, at the clubhouse, fretted and waited in vain for a quorum to appear. This did not happen very often. Only on extreme occasion did their own volition keep them away, for life there was too good. They even let their president get away with one thing. When Gracie, some days after the event, remembered that she had not entered on the books the five hundred spent on the stone for Mr. Wesley, nor the two dollars spent for bus fare, she also recalled that not all of the two dollars had been spent, and George still had fifty cents. She told him, well, put that back next time we open the box. George waved an airy hand. Oh, I already spent it. You spent it? asked Henny. Sure. It wasn't yours, Joey protested. It belongs to the box. Who says? We say, Paul stated. Well, go ahead and say, George told them. But I tell you, I figure it this way. The president ought to have a few privileges, and except for sitting in the first row for the TV, he hasn't got any. Why should he have privileges? Gracie demanded. Because I work harder than the rest, George burst out at them. That's why. The attack of his words stopped them for a moment, and he 
pressed his advantage. I got to do all the talking, or most of it, when we do things. I got to think up the things to do. I got to keep warning you all the time about being careful how we spend our money. I got to take the battery packs home and recharge them, and sometimes that isn't easy. I got to hold you down from going overboard about how much we take. I got to keep wiping your noses every minute. That's why, and I earn more than that lousy fifty cents. There were some debatable points in his speech, and they took these up avidly. The discussion became quite spirited, but with George adamant and stubborn, in the end they let him keeping it back, and also they had so much money it would hardly be missed. The argument Gracie made forgot again about entering the $500, and she never got around to putting it on the books. She had started out keeping track of the amounts they took from the box every week, and each time they purchased something, but lately had not kept it up. As a result, no one knew exactly what remained. They spoke of counting it, counting it all again some day, but it seemed a lot of work during the hot days, and this was put off. Paul reported that he had asked his father what happened if somebody found some money. At once, George wanted to know. You didn't say anything, did you? Of course not. I put it just as a question I was interested in. What'd he say? asked Gracie. He said what I said before. You're supposed to turn it in to the authorities, and then if nobody claims it, you get it back. That's what we're supposed to do? asked. I guess it is. And we didn't, said Joey. They asked Paul what else his father said. He said there were different laws in different places about it, and he'd look it up for here in his law book sometime. George asked, Doesn't he know that without having to look it up? Defensively, Paul replied, Lawyers don't know everything about everything. They look things up all the time. Well, we don't want to know anyway, George declared. He's going to tell me. Of Paul, Gracie inquired, Do you think we did anything wrong? Well, we didn't turn it in. I mean, could they arrest us or anything? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out when my father lets me know. I hope they can't arrest us, said Joey. You don't think we could be put in jail, do you? Henny asked Paul. I don't know. Maybe we could. Gracie mused. Maybe we ought to give it up after all. Henny suggested, maybe you better stop spending any more. Joey began be... That's enough talk like that, George told them all sharply. We aren't going to, and we aren't giving anything up. I don't care what your father says, he informed Paul. The money's ours. We found it. It doesn't belong to anybody else. There wasn't anybody to inherit it. Turning it in and maybe not getting it back is too risky, so it's out, do you hear? Out! Joey quoted for a second time, Finders keepers, losers weepers. That's it, said George. That's exactly right. And we're keeping, we're not doing any weeping. George came up with a new idea for them a few days later. There's one thing we've overlooked. We a flag. You mean a club flag? asked Henny. Well, we can think about one of those maybe later on, George elucidated. But right now, I was thinking of an American flag. I think the club ought to fly a flag. They considered. We ought to show we're American, said Gracie. Joey asked a pertinent question. Why do we have to do that if we're in America? They turned on him. Henny said, because, 
because it's done. Everybody does it, said Paul. It's the thing to do, Gracie held. You ought to show where you stand, George held. Joey asked another question. How much would it cost? Henny gave the first answer to this mercenary inquiry. If anybody was listening to you, they'd think you were a communist. I was just asking, Joey excused himself. If you aren't careful, Paul threatened, we're going to fine you or something. I didn't mean anything. Well, watch it, advised Gracie. It doesn't matter how much it costs, George held. It's the American flag, and you can't put a price on that. Besides, what does it matter to us? We could buy a million flags. It'd be patriotic. I vote for it. Let's do it. Joey climbed on the bat on the bandwagon belatedly. Sure. For buying it, George suggested, I think it ought to be at the store where we got the TV. They treated us all right, and we need another battery pack anyway, the way we've been playing it. He added expansively, I decided we can spread out a little with no harm. So while we're at it, why don't we ask our mothers if we can go downtown together for lunch and have it at the soda fountain in the store? You know how good that is. It'll be on the club, not our own money. Eyes shone at this idea. Can we have anything we want? Joey inquired. Why not? asked Paul. Several of them started to leave at once to go and ask their mothers, but George stopped them. Wait a minute. We don't take money out of the box without all seeing. How much do you think we'll need? Twenty-five dollars, suggested Joey. That won't cover it, said Paul. Not a good flag and the battery pack and lunch, suggested Gracie. Better make it more, said Henny. A hundred then, said George. I better take it and tens. He took it and the box was sealed again and buried. Gracie did not enter the transaction and no one reminded her. It didn't seem worthwhile anymore. Club money paid the bus fares to the department store and the first thing they did was to investigate buying the flag. In the department for this, the clerk wanted to know what kind of flag they had wanted and how they were going to fly it. They told him, but he didn't seem too happy at the prospect of the sale he might make, not even when they said they wanted a good one. He explained, without enthusiasm, There's different quality, of course, without real hope, he suggested. Perhaps you would like a silk one. Is that the best? asked George. The very best. Silk makes it wave better than any other kind because it's so light. Let's see the silk, then. The clerk with some reluctance, brought out and displayed a large silk flag. It measures eight feet by ten, he told them, and there are complete directions for flying it. Do you pay more for that? asked Joey. The rest of the musketeers withered him with their looks as the clerk assured Joey that this was not the case. How much is it? inquired George. The clerk picked up the tag and looked at it in a manner as if he knew very well what the price was, but wanted to soften the blow by consulting the official printed information. He spoke as though these customers could not afford this luxury item in any case. This fine flag, the very best we carry, sells for forty-two dollars. We'll take it said George. The clerk blinked, swallowed, but didn't say anything. He looked at them curiously, not knowing quite what to make of this. There was the matter of the money being in existence. All he could think of to say was, perhaps you'll want a staff too? Staff? 
asked Tenny. He means a flagpole, Gracie put in. Of the clerks, she asked, isn't that right? Perfectly right. Now, from what you say about the club place you mean to fly the flag, I would suggest one that you can, I would suggest one that you can fasten to the wall of your building. It'll stick out at an angle. That ought to be good, said Paul. They were shown staffs, and the clerk recommended one for the size of the flag they had selected. It consisted of a long, round pole painted white with a gold knob on the end beneath, which was a little pulley and a cleat near the other end. To go with it was a metal socket to be fastened to the side of a building and ropes to tie the flag to it and operate it in and out. They all liked the looks of that, and the price was only $15, so they decided on that, with the entire bill, including tax, coming to $58.71. The clerk cleared his throat and inquired delicately, I presume you are, that is, you have saved at this club you spoke of to pay for its flag and staff? George said at once, Oh, we got the money. The clerk looked hopeful. You do? George took out six ten-dollar bills and handed them over. Well, the clerk exclaimed. He brightened perceptibly. He hurried to get change and wrap their goods as though something might interfere with the transaction. He thanked them with a bemused look in his eye. They brought the battery pack and then, Henny carrying the flagpole, Paul the flag, and Joey the battery pack, they made their way to the soda fountain on the ground floor. Here, because it was still early, they found five stools all together. They ordered giant sodas all around and consumed them quickly, then ordered another round of the same. George and Gracie had enough at that point, but the other three ordered a third and ate and sucked them somewhat more slowly, but with satisfaction. It was, a, it was an extremely delightful lunch, and the bill, with giant sodas in the store at 65 cents apiece, came to only $8.45. Their excursion, all told, with a dollar and fence worth of bus fares, came to $91.53. On the way back in the bus, carrying their parcels, Henny whispered, It's a good thing we brought a hundred. It leaves some left over, Paul pointed out. This was for George's benefit, a reminder that would prevent him from appropriating any more of their fortune for himself. George frowned at him. Perhaps as a result of the reminder, when they arrived at the clubhouse and all started to suck on Coke bottles, he took out what was left over and found it came to $8.47. Gracie, figuring the cost of everything, discovered that there was a discrepancy of 58 cents somewhere, but she wasn't sure if it was in their favor or against them. They didn't let it worry them. It seemed hardly worthwhile to dig up the box, break the seals, open it, restore what was left, seal the box, and bury it again. So they decided it would be democratic to divide it, which meant a dollar and sixty-nine cents going to each. This left two cents extra, which were turned over to George, with no one thinking of or making a joke to the effect that it represented the worth of his services as president. They unwrapped the flag and socket and cord, together with the directions for raising and lowering the flag, and set to work installing it on the front wall of the clubhouse near the door. Some of them wanted to stay inside and play the TV, but George ordered them all out to help if needed.
One of the chairs was brought out, together with the hammer and screwdriver and one big nail. George mounted the chair, fitted the socket in what they all thought was a good place, and then, with the official club pencil, marked where the screws would go. He started the places for these by hammering a nail partially in and working it out. Then, with Henny holding the socket over these markings, and with a good deal of grunting effort, he worked the screws in. After studying the directions, they got the cords arranged right through the pulley and in the metal eyelets on the flag. The pole was installed in the socket, and they got ready for the flag raising. I'll do it, said George. The rest of you stand out there and watch. The four lined up facing the flag. All right, George said. Here goes. He pulled on the rope, and the flag went out to the end of the pole, which wasn't very far. It was so big that it hung down in the still hot air, and one corner touched the ground. Gracie said, It doesn't look right. Not so good, Paul agreed. What's the matter with it? George asked. You can't have the American flag touching the ground, said Henny. Joey gave his opinion as though trying to make sure no one thought him to be a communist. It isn't patriotic. George walked out to where they stood so he could get a better look. It's kind of big, isn't it? Maybe it's too big for the clubhouse. George shook his head. We can fix that. How? We'll have to raise the socket. Put it up higher so the flag won't touch the ground. It'll still look big. It's longer than the club is high. I don't think that matters. Paul, you and Henny do it this time. Joey, you bring me another chair from inside to sit on. They followed directions, and George sat on the chair, directing matters while the others worked, removing the socket and raising it. Then they had a second flag raising. It looked better this time, or at least the flag didn't touch the ground. They were vastly proud of it. I think we ought to pledge allegiance to it, said George. You mean, like in school? asked Gracie. Every day? asked Henny. Every day. Paul spoke more quickly than he usually did. He had started to stand up to George again, taking up the rivalry that had shown itself after the money was found. I'm just as patriotic as anybody, he declared. But we do that every morning in school, and I don't see why we have to do it in summer, too. I said we ought to do it, George declared. And I say we don't, Paul differed. Now look here. I'm the president, and just because you're the president... Paul informed him, doesn't mean we have to do everything you say. George scowled at this insurrection. Joey looked as though he did not dare to express a negative opinion about saluting the flag, but he cried, vote, vote. George held, I think we ought to do it without any vote. But the others took up the cry of vote, vote, and he had to capitulate. All in favor of giving a pledge of allegiance every day to the American flag in the good American way, George propounded, hold up their right hands. His own went up, but that of no one else. George glared menacingly at Joey, whose hand was then raised. Disgustedly, as though it was treason, George said, there's no use asking the rest. It's three to two against the American flag. It isn't like that. Paul claimed. It's just that we do it in school, and this isn't school time. Well, we ought to do it once. I wouldn't mind doing it once, Paul admitted. 
It's all right with me, said Gracie. Let's do it now, Henny suggested. They stood in line and put their right hands over their left breasts and, at a signal from George, said in chorus with no concern for punctuation marks, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the nation for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. They dropped their hands, each of them as one, jumped as a voice in back of them said, Now that's what I call good spirit. They whirled, and Mr. McGill in his brown policeman's uniform stood there. His patrol car was out on the road. Saved your money to buy a flag, I see, he observed. And it's a beauty. Kind of big, though, but there's nothing the matter with that. He stepped nearer to it. Pretty fancy flag, too. Looks like silk. And that pole must have cost you. George gulped, but he met the occasion. We saved for a long time, Mr. McGill laughed. For a minute there, I thought you'd found the money. They went still, and not even George knew what to say. Mr. McGill went on. I mean the money you asked Detective Brawley about, over in the house. He laughed again and looked at their clubhouse. Say, you know, I never saw inside your shack. Want to let me see it? Gracie made a dash for inside. Fortunately, the money box wasn't out, being buried, but the TV was uncovered, with the rabbit ear up. Luckily, it hadn't been playing. She collapsed the ear, snatched the parcel, snatched the partial sheet from where it was stored, and threw it over the machine, tugging it in a frantic, tugging it in frantically around the bottom. They couldn't make any excuse for Mister McGill not to to look in. Ducking his head, he half stepped inside. Say, that's all right. That's real good. I've seen you here when I make my rounds. I guess you have a pretty good time, don't you? They murmured that they did. What's under that sheet? He asked. Henny answered this time. That's something secret to do with the club, Mr. McGill. Is, huh? Well, I won't ask any more questions. I see you've got plenty of coke. He stepped back and out again. He looked at the flag once more. You know it ain't supposed to fly after sundown or before sunrise. We know, said Paul. You kids are doing all right, he assured them. I'll keep an eye on your place for you, just like one of the houses. This, too, they could not very well refuse. They thanked him politely, and he went to his car and drove away. They picked up their chairs and tools and rushed inside, where the door was shut and the candle lighted. Gracie cried, He suspects something. Henny agreed. He thinks something. He saw the coke, Paul cried. He almost saw the TV, Joey shouted. George said, I don't think it matters his seeing the coke. He told Gracie, You did good covering up the TV like that. And you, Henny, saying it was a secret. That was quick thinking. Paul, as though having second thoughts, said, I didn't like that about his saying about the money, but... I didn't like it either, said George. He turned on Joey. It comes from you mentioning it to Detective Brawley. Joey shrank within his grievous sin and did not attempt to defend himself. They speculated, highly disturbed over the visit of Mr. McGill. Paul finished what he had been interrupted about. I think it just happened. I don't think he suspects anything. If he did, he'd been here before asking about it. That's right. 
George said. He doesn't know anything. He laughed when he mentioned it about the money. You heard him laugh. He thinks it's a joke, that's all. Gracie said, I wish he wouldn't keep an eye on our place. I wish he wouldn't. He only means, Henny held, hopefully, he'll look at it driving by. The way he does the houses, Paul agreed. He said that. That's all, said George. With an excessive willingness to please, Joey piped, Sure. They took refuge and comfort in their own assurances. They hoped they were sound. End of segment 14. Thank you for listening.